and to, and to realize that these people are going through some very difficult things, extremely difficult things. And, and, they, and I believe he's right about this. The most important thing is Jesus. They got the medical, but the most important thing is the Spirit of God himself. So let's pray. God, we, we thank you first for Josh. We thank you just for what you're doing in his life. God, we are so proud of what he is doing. Lord, we thank you for letting us be a part of this with him. And uh, Lord, we ask you to bless this overseas. We ask you to bless this in Ukraine, the open doors, everything that's going on here. Lord, we ask you to anoint these two men, anoint the, the uh, people that are involved, the ladies that are involved with this. Lord, we ask you to reach across into these soldiers' hearts and lives and let them know that you are there, Jesus. That you are bigger than anything that can possibly happen. God, we commit this to you. Holy Spirit, you be in charge in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this is exciting stuff. Aren't we proud of our Josh? <laughs> is, is it also just me, or does it just seem like um, uh, Ukrainian people are just tougher than... <laughs> than even as he's sitting there talking about Jesus, I'm like, that's right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, ask him more questions. They got some stuff out there. Uh, Josh, let's talk about this. Um, this is important to be talked about. So, so uh, we just got back last night. We took our, our uh, this is an annual thing we do, took all of our board members and spouses. We took all of our pastors and spouses, and we go to retreat every year. And uh, this is just always a good time. And, uh, but, but for me personally, and, and some of them said this too, but th this year just was, was really strong and powerful for all of us at the retreat. Just really God doing some things. We always get an opportunity to talk together, pray together. What's God doing in our lives? What, what does he need to do in our lives? These kind of things. And, uh, and I, I'm excited. We, we've, we talked about a few different things. And this, this message this morning is actually part of this. It wasn't intended to be. Uh, when I when I put it together quite a quite a quite a while back, but uh, I kept telling everybody at the retreat, okay, I want you to know that um, that I've already I've already got the message done this weekend. I'm not taking from things we're saying. So, <laughs> but uh, but we one of the things we were talking about is how does a church really move forward, and and the the number one way that a church moves forward is not all the, the stuff that we put so much emphasis on in American church mentality. But it's, it's, the, the truth of it is, is really just pursuing God with everything, really letting God be in charge, letting him be king over everything. And the, very, the, the number one thing that hinders that, that stops that, is, is not sin. Believe it or not, sin is not what stops the church from moving forward. In fact, uh, that's why Jesus Christ died, because of grace and because of forgiveness of sin and those kind of things. That's what, that's actually a part of the, that's the reason for the church is, to embrace people that are involved in sin, help us figure that kind of stuff out. That doesn't actually stop the progression of the kingdom of God. The thing that stops the progression of the kingdom of God is religiosity. Um, religion. Religion that, that is, religion is destructive. Somebody said this to me years ago. I was a very young youth pastor, and the first time they said to me this, I, I heard them say this. I was actually in the Navy, and I was, I was um, at, a, at a thing with the Navy, and somebody said this statement, uh, and and it, it kind of uh, offended me a little bit, you know. They said, religion does nothing but destroy. And I, I started to defend that, and, at, and I thought about that a little bit, and then over time, I've really 
readdressed my thought process. I think the, probably the most destructive force on the planet is religion. It just, it just hurts. It just tears apart. It tears countries and people and all kinds of stuff. Religion doesn't have positiveness to it. Now, relationship with God and understanding God's word, there's great power in that. Having a true personal relationship with Jesus, there's great power in that. And so th- that's the transformative, transformative mentality that, that, that I believe that society is built upon is, is Jesus Christ. And so w- with that being said, we're looking at what does Jesus look like? And last week we looked more just like in a physical sense of what did Jesus look like. And, and, and I'm going to be bouncing all over the place with this series. At the end of it, if you actually look at the, the, the way I bounce back and forth, it, it makes sense. But, but to, to really kind of go in a complete different direction this morning, what does Jesus look like? And as I said last week, there's, it's amazing to me how people at Jesus' time and people today, there's people that love Jesus, people that seem to be indifferent about Jesus, and then people that seem to really hate Jesus. And, and I, I, can, I can almost kind of understand the indifference but the hating Jesus just doesn't make sense. It doesn't, doesn't connect in my, my mind and my spirit. Jesus has done literally nothing to hurt anybody on the planet. None of Jesus' teachings do anything to hurt anyone on the planet. They're just, there's, there's not a, a negative to it. There's not a destructiveness to it. Now, if you are, <clears throat> if you are a, um, a murderer, some of Jesus' teachings will bother you. Right? You, you see what I'm saying. So in looking at this, we're going to look at how does Jesus look to certain people in Scripture, and these people are the religious group, Pharisees, Sadducees, those kind of things. How did Jesus look to them? Because this is something that I think every one of us can learn something from here. There's always this, um, there's always this uh, temptation, this propensity for us to want to get caught up in religion because religion is way easier than relationship with Jesus. Religion satisfies your flesh, religion satisfies your desires, whereas relationship with Jesus satisfies his plans, which then uh, are perfect for you. But if we don't go into it knowing that it's going to satisfy who Jesus is first, that becomes uh, in conflict with us because we want to satisfy us first. And so the, the religious group, how, how this looked, we, we see this, you know, Matthew 5 kind of mentality, blessed are the meek, and, and all, that's the kind of the way we always look at Jesus, like he's standing on a hillside and, and maybe even kind of hovering on the hillside. He doesn't actually touch the ground because he's Jesus, and he just kind of floats in the sky, and he's got the big gold disc and the glowing garments and all that stuff. That's how, that's how the, the, the church has depicted Jesus over the years. And I think those are very destructive kind of visuals because it's not who Jesus is. Jesus didn't hover everywhere he went. He walked on sandals everywhere he went and his feet stunk. That's the reality of who Jesus is. But if we, if we paint this picture, some of the pictures that I showed last week of Jesus, and every time we see him, he's like glowing and he's got his hand like this. Like that's all he does. That's not who Jesus is. It's not who he was on this earth. He was, he was 100% God, but he was also 100% human. And the, thing, the only thing that we see throughout all of Scripture in New Testament that, G, that irritates Jesus, angers Jesus, is religiosity. It's not sin. Sin does not seem to anger Jesus in the New Testament. It's religiousness that angers Jesus. And that's what we have to be very careful of, is that, that, we're, that we're playing a religious game with this. 
And so, um, I've, I've, got some, um, I've got some pictures here. These are some pictures. The reason I use these pictures is because, to me, they're um, historical pictures of Jesus are always educational, and, and good and bad. But uh, we've got uh, pictures of Jesus with the Pharisees and Sadducees. So let's look at one of the, the first ones here. This is Jesus turning over the money changer's table, and that's why we're going to focus on. That story is what we're going to focus on this morning um, with some other things. But this is Jesus turning over the, the table of the money changers. Now, this is the only one that I found that really, to me, had a um, really kind of what Jesus looked like. Jesus is right in the middle there, and the guy in the purple is trying to grab him, and and that, to me, this is a legitimate-looking picture. Most of the rest of them, he was like floating in the sky like this, and the tables were just turning over like by Jedi mind tricks or something. I don't know. But, but weird stuff, weird stuff of how the church looks at this. this. I, I want you to ask yourself in your mind right now, what do you think, what do you think Jesus' face looked like when he was turning over the money changers' tables? You think he was smiling and glowing? Literally think about this. Because this is something that the church all across the world, not just America, but the church struggles with, is Jesus being a real human being, as, also God, obviously, but real human being, and, and some of the things that he did and that he said, we try to paint them in these really pretty ways that, that was, he, was he God? Yes. Did he sin in any of these moments? No. But, but I, I think you see a lot of anger on Jesus' face when he's flipping these tables over. And I don't think he's, bless you, my children, I flippeth your table. I don't think that's what he, but, but we do that in American Christianity. We do it all over the world, actually. It's not just America. Let's look at another picture of, of um, what do you think Jesus looked like when he took the whip and started, we're going to read this here in a second, but when this was very premeditated. It says that Jesus went and sat down and made a whip. That's premeditation. And then he walks in and kicks rear all over the, the courtyard of this temple. He's, he's whipping people, hitting them, flipping the tables over. Do we, do we I want you to ask yourself. Do you struggle with that picture of Jesus? Do, do you struggle with that? What does Jesus look like? One more picture. I think this one is very important for us. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that one out there. So, um, so I've got a few pictures of, of Jesus talking to the Pharisees. I really would like to, to, of course, I say this all the time. I would like to have been standing there when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. I'd like to have seen what he looked like. And here's one of the reasons. As a pastor, sometimes I have addressed issues, and people think I'm not that holy when I'm addressing the issues. I really think I probably look a little bit more like Jesus than some people give me credit for sometimes. What did Jesus say? What, did, what was he looking like? What did his face look like? What did his voice sound like when he was talking to the Pharisees? What did that, what did that look like? What did that sound like? Next picture. These, these people that he's talking to were destroying the kingdom of God. Tearing down the kingdom of God. 
Oh, they had religion. They could say it the right way. They could do it the right way. They knew all the verses in the Bible. In fact, it, it says they had them on their arms. They had the verses in boxes on their arms. They knew everything about the kingdom of God, knew every law, knew everything. And they were tearing down the kingdom of God. Last picture of um, the Pharisees plotting against Jesus. So if you look through the New Testament, the, the only places that I can find that Jesus got angry, and he did, he actually did quite a bit. Um, he got frustrated sometimes. That's not what I'm talking about. Sometimes he looked at his disciples and were like, what do I have to do? You know, that kind of, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, that, that is, that's going to be consistent throughout any Christian walk or whatever. But, but Jesus got angry. The only time he got angry was at religiosity. It's the only time. And, and he did some very strong things. So here's, I tried to put this, I was trying to figure out how to put this into uh, categories that would be very simplistic and not like 20 different categories. So I, I think I've narrowed this down to three categories that covers pretty much every kind of religiosity, maybe. The, the first one is religious control. That trying to make people do things that you want them to do. Religious control. Uh, this is, this is a lot of what the Pharisees and Sadducees did was religious control. They want to control people, want to control people, their thinking, their minds, their, their money, all the different things, want to control. Okay? The next one is religious arrogance. And this is people thinking that they're better than other people. We come across this a few times uh, with Jesus. Some of this is Pharisees and Sadducees. Some of it is actually some independent people, some just people in the church kind of thing that uh, people that were part of Judaism, I would say it that way, they weren't necessarily leaders, but there was, a, there was an arrogance there. Well, I just, I know better. I know more. This is where you get, this is almost always where you get people pointing at other people and being judgmental. This is where that comes in. Is, um, and, and I grew up a lot with, a lot with this, that um, it seemed to be very strong in this time frame. And I know things happen cyclically, but in, in the time I was a, a kid up to junior high, that kind of thing, it seemed to be that everybody, everybody was looking at everybody according to the way they dressed, according to the way um, uh, they, they uh, looked. It was a very much on the outside kind of thing. You know, when I, was, when I was a kid, long hair was starting to become a thing with guys, right? This was in the 70s, coming into the 80s. Long hair was a big deal. And I would hear the church talking about this, all them long-haired hippies and all, and at some point, you're like, Does, is that really a thing? Is that really something we need to focus on? How long your hair is? Is that really something? I mean, that's, that's what's going to bring down the world is long hair. That's what's going to destroy the kingdom of God is long hair. Um, I did grow my hair long because it was the 80s. Uh, I did grow my hair long. And every time I got like an attitude with my dad, he would cut my hair. And he would tell me, he said, I don't know what it is, but every time I cut your hair, your attitude straightens up. It's like, I must be Samson. No, I didn't say that out loud. So <clears throat> <laughs> I did ask my dad one time. He was talking to me about something and, and, and long hair, and I needed a haircut. And I was, of course, he was military too, but um, all, all this stuff. And, and I did say to him one time, I was about 16. I just got my driver's license. And I said to him, you know, Jesus had long hair. And he said, Jesus walked everywhere he went. <laughs> Touche, Father. So, so then the, uh, the third one here is, is religious misdirection. And I didn't know exactly how to categorize it, but I think that does it well. Where people use religion 
theology. They use things to keep people's eyes off of Jesus, to keep people's eyes off of truth. You can use the Bible to keep people's eyes away from truth. You, you can use the Bible for anything. Anything you want to try to prove, you can use the Bible for. That's, that's, a, that's, that's a, a doable thing. But misdirection, the, the easiest example I have of this is the woman at the well. Jesus wasn't upset at her. She had, she had had five different husbands living with this guy, all these other kind of things, very sinful, all this stuff. And he's talking to her. He's, he's polite. He's, he's uh, peaceful with her, everything. And then she starts talking about where we're going to pray and the mountain, uh, the, 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 are you coming back to bring God's law or whatever, all these kind of things. Uh, and that's when he gets irritated with her. He's not irritated with her up until then. I think he's brokenhearted for her, and he has, he has compassion for her and a grace for her. But when she starts bringing in religiosity, he gets irritated. And that's when he says, oh, yeah, well, you've had five husbands. Let's cut to the chase, lady. When, he, when she brings out the religiousness to try to misdirect. We see, we see where this, this stuff makes Jesus extremely angry, not just irritated, but angry. Matthew chapter 23. I'm, I'm just going to read down through some of this. I don't, I don't want to, I'm not doing this to unpack every bit of the scripture. I want us just to look at the, who Jesus is. How do you see Jesus? How do you understand Jesus through this? Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the, of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. I mean, he just gets in there, doesn't he? They're telling you the right stuff. When they're talking about God's word, they're telling you the right stuff. I've had this conversation with many different people over the years where they'll, they'll hear God's word, they'll, they'll sit under a, a minister, preacher, or teacher's um, leadership, and, and then that person falls, does something wrong, moral failure, something like that. And there is a, there's a, a natural mentality. I, I don't totally understand it because I, I do separate these in my head, but some people don't. They say, well, I can't believe anything they've ever said. Well, no, that's not true. If it's God's word, you can believe it no matter who says it. If it's God's word, even if the person is completely wrong, even if the person's sinful or the person's attitude or whatever the case is, you can still believe God's word. Even if, the, even if their intention for saying it was wrong, God's word is still true. And you can take that as truth into your life. And you can take... There, there are different times when I'll listen to, to speakers, ministers, and things online. I do that a lot. And, uh, and some of these guys I don't like. I don't like and I don't totally respect them because I know more about their existence. Okay? I know about their life. And I don't necessarily like them. But I do know that what they're saying is true, and I'll listen to them. Right? So he says, listen to what they say, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. That, that, is, that, that is becoming, to me, that is becoming more and more uh, kind of the, um, the, the church mentality in America today is it's about show. And a lot of even the speakers, it's about the show. It's about how cool they are, how cool they say it, or, or how many books they've written, or how many followers they have, and all this other kind of stuff. And it's about the show. If, here's, here's one of the things I've always thought about. Is if the speaker, whoever the speaker is, take some famous person and put them in your head right now. If the speaker could just write down their message word for word and pass it out to people and nobody knows who said it. 
would it still be as impactful into people's lives? Because that would be the true test. And by the way, I think that there are ministers and pastors all over the country that could do that, and you would grow greatly through what they're saying and through what scripture they're, they're bringing out through this. I have met some ministers that, that pastor very small churches that are truly men and women of God that have great input that needs to be heard around the country, but they're not famous. And then we've got guys that are, that are well-known all over, and they can pack out coliseums and everything, and you sit and listen to them, and you think, what are they saying? What are they saying? I just had this happen. Uh, with us, we were down at, at um, General Council in Florida, 15,000, 20,000 Assemblies of God ministers were in a service together, and one of the, the most famous of our, of our ministers gets up and he speaks. Speaks for about 45 minutes. And, I'm, and I, the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, I don't even know for sure if this is really biblical. It's definitely whipped cream at the best. It was not, it was not, he was trying to prove a theology we don't even believe. And then a missionary's, uh, some missionaries got up. The Grants, if you know who they are, they, do, they deal with human trafficking and all this kind of stuff. The Grants got up, and they were just going to give them an award and say something, do something. And, um, and they said, would you like to say something, Beth Grant? Would you like to say something? She said no. And uh, you could tell the audience was like, no, we're not letting her leave till she says something. So she gets a microphone, and she begins to preach. For about seven or eight minutes, she preaches a message that was ten times deeper, more from the Holy Spirit than the entire 45, 50 minutes from the speaker before. And I thought, but, but she's not famous. She is in my eyes, but she's not famous. But I'd much rather have heard what she had to say. Much rather have heard what she had to say. Because it's, it's not, it's, it's, this is God's word. This is who we are is involved. In fact, this, is, this was our whole retreat this last weekend with, with our board and our pastors. Is Church is not about what we're doing. It's who we are. I'm saying from the leaders from our board, from our pastors. It's who we are. That has got to be the, the, def, the defining thing for us. It's who we are. It's our prayer life. It's seeking after God. It's knowing his word. It's chasing after him and loving people. That is what determines who Church of Briargate is going to be. It's not the things that we do. Those should be outflows of that. The things we do do not determine the, 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 what we're trying to be. It's going to have to come from who we are. Who are we? Are we just playing church? Are we just doing this? And this, this sentence came up over and over and over through our retreat this last weekend. We don't want a form of godliness. We want the power of God. I have been watching for too long the form of godliness. And, and to unpack this a little bit right now here, I have seen it here in this church since the day I walked in the doors. We have elements of the form of godliness, but no power, no transformative power, no life-changing power that, 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 that changes someone from, from not knowing Jesus to knowing, from sinner to saved, from, from this religious mentality to true service to God, true hunger for God. And we've got to fight this. We've got to fight this, this thing that creeps upon us that's called religion. That says, I am comfortable going to church week after week, but nothing else is happening in my existence. 
No, no life-changingness. No people begging to know more about God. No people being healed and set free from all the junk, addictions, and everything else. We've got to, we've got to stop just being church people. We've got to pursue God. I mean, with everything about us, pursue God. Pursue Him. Verse 12, he says, What sorrow awaits you teachers? This is Jesus talking. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. This is Jesus calling them names. This is Jesus. Hypocrites. For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others go in either. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you cross land and sea to make one convert. One convert to what? Their religion. Not God. Not who God is. Not God loving them and and providing and taking care of them. Just a convert. And then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. This is Jesus saying this. He's pretty serious. He's not playing around here. Verse 27. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like religious people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. I've I've thought about this in so many different ways. So, So you're standing there and Jesus is talking. Jesus is saying these things. Think about all the people that are potentially represented there. We do know that the disciples are there. We know that Pharisees and Sadducees are there. He's looking right at them when he's talking to them. He's not saying this around behind their back. He's looking right at them. How is everybody seeing Jesus at this moment? How are they seeing him? How many people, think about this, how many people walk away and say, oh, that's just not a nice guy. I can't get behind that guy. You know that happened. You know that happened. Of course, it's God. It's God in human flesh, the Messiah, the Redeemer. But there are people that walked away that he is just not a nice guy. I just, I just can't support that. What about the Pharisees? How, how excited were they about this moment? How much fun were they having? But he's looking right at them and calling them names. Looking right at them. Saying, you, you act like this, you say, but, th- but this is not real. What you're doing is not real. You can make the rules, you can play the games, you can dress up. He actually talks about what they're wearing at places in here. He, he said, but, but inside, nothing, nothing. This makes him angry. There's three things that I, I tried to break this down, simplify it. Not just from this part of Scripture, but just Scripture, just the New Testament in general, the four Gospels. Here's here's the the three things that I know for sure that Jesus used in dealing with religiosity. The first one is sarcasm. Matthew chapter 12. Haven't you read the law of Moses? When you see that anywhere in the New Testament, when Jesus is looking at the people that read the law every single day, all day long, they have it written on their garments, when he says to, to them, don't you even read the Bible? That's sarcasm. Now, why is that such a big deal? 
Because I have found, scripturally first, second personally in my own life, sarcasm roots into arrogance more than anything else does in society. Sarcasm gets into arrogance, and it reveals arrogance, and it, and it um, attacks arrogance. Sarcasm will offend arrogant people more than anything else. Sarcasm. And Jesus uses it often through the New Testament. But he only uses it with one group of people. The religious. That's the only place he uses it. When he says, don't you even read the Bible? That's sarcasm. Now, what part of the reason he says that is to get under the skin of the religiously arrogant. But another reason he says it is so that everybody else around gets an immediate understanding. Sarcasm can bring some things to light quicker than almost anything else. And so he's revealing things to people that are standing around, and he's hoping that it will reveal things to the religious, the religiously arrogant. Whether it does or not is their decision, but that's what he does. He uses that. The second thing, <clears throat> the second thing that he does is he calls them names. You're like, this is not fun. Jesus calls them names. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them hypocrites. Uh, verse 33 of Matthew 23, he calls them snakes. He calls them sons of vipers. How about that? I, I, um, sometimes as a pastor, I get picked on because I do use sarcasm and things like that. And uh, I don't care what you think about that. So uh, that was a little sarcastic in case you didn't pick that up. But... <clears throat> But, but here's something, I've never, I've never stood up here and called anybody snakes or sons of vipers or hypocrites or whitewashed tombs. I've never said any of those things because I think that's a little bit too far. I'm serious. I think that's just a little bit too far. I'm not Jesus. Jesus, it's not too far for him. He knows. See, if I, if, if I do that, if I say something like that, if I say, okay, you guys are all snakes, what I'm doing is not right because some of you are not. Some of you might be. I don't know for sure. That's the, that's the point. When Jesus looked at them and called them snakes, he knew. He knew exactly who he was talking to. That's why I think in my position you have to be careful with that. And in your position too. If you call your children sons of vipers, uh, two things are going on. One, you know if they're vipers, uh, sons of vipers. And secondly, you're the viper. So think about that. So... <laughs> <laughs> all right but part of the reason that jesus calls them names is because he is trying to get a visual picture that not only they can get to quickly but all the people around them can immediately understand what he's trying to say guys jesus is not okay with religiosity he is not okay with this it is destructive it keeps people from getting saved, and it hurts new Christians. That's exactly what he just said to the Pharisees. It hurts new Christians, and it hurts the kingdom of God overall. How do you see Jesus? Do you really, do you really see, or do, is there somewhere in your head right now you're just trying to um, make it all pretty the way that Jesus said this to these people? Were we trying to holify it when we're, when we're saying this about Jesus in our brain? He got up in these people's faces and he was not nice because religiosity destroys. The third thing that he does is he physically attacks them. That, 
That one goes so far outside most people's scope of who Jesus is. He physically attacks them. It says he went, sat down, and made a whip. And then it says he went and turned the money changers' tables over. Well, here's the thing. You don't need a whip to turn tables over. You need a whip for people. Right? He sits down and makes a whip because when he gets in there, he's serious. Now, I don't believe he was reacting in anger. I don't believe that that is... I don't believe Jesus ever does that in the New Testament anywhere that we see. He never reacts in anger. But he does get angry and he acts in anger toward the religious. And he's very strong about this. He goes over and tears everything they're doing up. This isn't just, I flip a table with some coins on it. There's cages of animals, all kinds of stuff, and he's just tearing through that place and chasing people out and doing all kinds of stuff. Now, why? He tells them, this is my father's house. You don't play around like this. You don't play around with, with, with a place where we're supposed to serve God and pray. You don't play around with the mentality. Now, I've had people say in, in today's society, well, like us having a coffee shop, um, that's, that's, just, that's money changers tables. I, guys, that's not even close to what that was. It's, it's not even close. They were literally selling the animals that they needed to sacrifice to God at higher rates and demanding that they sacrifice them to God. Uh, the priests were in cahoot. They were the ones running the whole thing. And they were making this a direct way that you had to serve God. You couldn't, do, you couldn't serve God unless you went through their financial system. We're selling coffee to give to missionaries. Ain't the same thing. Now, none of you in here have said this, man. I'm not saying that's what that, that any of you have said. Okay. Right, but, but I've had people before say that, that stuff to me. And that's not the same thing. Are you selling T-shirts? I've heard that one before. In fact, I heard the first time I heard it, I was a youth pastor selling T-shirts. But um, <clears throat> they say, youth groups selling T-shirts, that's money changer tables. No, the person that says that is, is consumed with religiosity. It's the person saying it that's the problem. It's not the one they're saying it about. That's religiosity. Come on. How, how do we get away from this? We do what God says. We love God with everything about us, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we'll do that, we won't be caught up in religion. But when you start loving yourself more, you start loving your church structure more, or your particular speaker or something else, then you start stepping into religiosity. You start stepping into this is a... This is a um, this is a, a form of godliness. It's, it's something that we do. It's not really godliness. We've got to make sure that we stay away from this. Okay? <clears throat> he continues. Um, John chapter 2. He physically attacks him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip with some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered money changers, coins over the floor, turned over their tables. <clears throat> then going over to the people who sold the doves, he said, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from Scripture. Passion for God's house will consume me. Jesus knew that religiosity kills. It's more dangerous than sin. Do you know why it's more dangerous than sin since you asked? I'll tell you. Sin 
Most people that are sinning, if you talk to them about it, they know they're sinning. And whether or not they admit that at that moment or confess it or whatever, most people know when they're sinning and there is an understanding they need to be forgiven. Religiosity hides behind the idea that they are already better and more holy than everybody else and therefore don't need to be forgiven. They don't need to repent. They are the, they're the trendsetters of holiness. They're the, they're the examples of righteousness. And that's why Jesus looks right at the Pharisees and says, no, it's the opposite. You're saying all this stuff, but there's nothing in your heart that's right with this. this th- these are the opposites of religiosity. Love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, the gospel, the body of Christ, Jesus. Those are the opposites of religiosity. Now, I am not talking about um, the, the basic definition of hypocrisy, okay? I believe every one of us in here can be good Christians and still be hypocrites at different times, right? Hypocrites are, hypocrites are saying one thing but doing something else. I believe good Christians can be caught up in that. It's not the same thing as religiosity. Religiosity says, but I am still great no matter what. I am still perfect. I am still righteous. I am still all of this. Everybody should do everything. I say that's religiosity. That's not, that's not hypocrisy. Okay? You understand the difference in the two. Hypocrisy, man, you just get some things wrong sometime, and, but you're still acting good in church. I'll give you a good example of hypocrisy that will work on probably two-thirds of us right now. You have a big fight with the wife on the way to church? Big fight with the kids on the way to church? Has anybody ever experienced that but me? I believe you'll get more fights on Sunday morning than any other time. Partly because Satan wants to mess with you. That's what he's trying to do. Get in a big fight with the wife in church, and then you come and sit down at church. You put her arm around you, sing, you clap, you do all this stuff, and you act like you didn't just uh, berate her for something that shouldn't have been berated about. That's hypocrisy. And the simple thing to do is right in the middle of worship, say, God, I am so sorry, I'm wrong, reach over, hug your wife, say, I'm sorry, let's talk about this later, or let's never talk about it again, whatever works for you. But that's repentance on the heels of hypocrisy. Religiosity says, she does, she's not near as holy as I am. She doesn't understand that as the man of the house, she should treat me properly. That's religiosity. Okay. What do we do with this Jesus? What do we, how do we embrace this? Do we embrace this Jesus? Can we get, wrap our mind around it? What do we do with this? Jesus actually is the only one that can literally be righteously indignant. Most humans don't have a right to be righteously indignant. Every now and then, maybe. But very rarely. So, see, I personally don't have the problem with this Jesus. In fact, I can get behind this Jesus better than a lot of Jesus that we are presented in the church world today. This, this weak, mamby-pamby, float-around, glowing guy that was just bless you at all. I can't, get, I can't get behind that guy. But a guy that walks into the temple and says, I'm tired of you treating my heavenly father and his house like this. We're going to do something about it today. I get behind that Jesus. I, can, I, can, I get that. Jesus wants us to what? Pursue God. He wants us to be righteous. He wants us to be humble. He wants us to love others. He wants us to be bold. And he wants us to stand up for the gospel. And that is going to fly in the face, oftentimes, of religious arrogance. Religious arrogance doesn't want to pursue the lost. 
Religious arrogance doesn't want to really let the Holy Spirit be in charge. They want to be in charge. Religious arrogance says, you do what I say, not what the Holy Spirit says. Jesus wants us to pursue God. Pursue God. Why don't you stand with me? There are, there are other places throughout Scripture where we see Jesus do this, and he gets upset, does these kind of things. I've always found it interesting that the uh, woman caught in adultery, that the only person Jesus was mad at is the people that brought her. He wasn't mad at her. His heart was broken for her. Sin was destroying her. But he was mad at the people that brought her. Guys, we've got to do whatever. Anytime this creeps upon you, every one of us in here will be guilty of this at different times if you're not intentional. Having a form of godliness, doing church without the power, the transformative, supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. That's what this is about. Pursuing God under the, the calling and the direction of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Lord, we, we submit ourselves to you right now. God, first I pray for me. Lord, I pray if there's, if there's religiosity, if I'm, if I'm doing some of the things that Jesus was upset about, Lord, Please convict me. Please forgive me. God, I pray that for every one of us in here. God, help us to, to see it and to, to fight against it. Lord, we don't want to just do church. We don't want to just be that Christian down the street. We want to be that person that people can come to and talk to and, be, be, and understand that there's something different about us. Lord, we want to be life givers. We don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to, to pick on people. We want to be life givers. We want this church to be a place of life. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to convict us right now. Anything, anything that's happening, anything that, that's creeping in our mind, our spirit, that, that would fall into the category of, of religion, Religiosity, Lord, help us to fight against it in the name of Jesus. Lord, we need you. We need you. In Jesus' name. Lord, I believe that you are taking our church into a new place. Lord, I believe you're doing this right now. God, I believe that you spoke to us this weekend and you showed us this. Lord, I believe you're taking our, our board and our pastors into a new place. I know you're taking me. Lord, and I know that you want to take our entire church. You want to move us forward into you. Leave some of the junk behind. Lord, I believe you're crumbling those walls. As we speak, you're crumbling those walls that have been built up here. And Lord, you're taking us forward. So God, I respond to that and I pray that everyone in this room responds to that. Lord, it starts with we repent. We repent, Lord, of the times when we're not following you and the times when our hearts and lives are not right. We repent. In Jesus' name. Jesus, we pray. Amen.
So normally I would have a raise of hands or do something, but this is not a this is not the one you raise hands on. Um, because I've found the people that need to raise their hands won't, and the people that don't will. But uh, here's the truth of this. Guys, ask the Lord about this this week. God convicted me back in 1995, the very first time of this, sitting in a church, assuming that I was good. And God convicted me and said, what makes you think you're good? Because you're a youth pastor? What makes you think you're good? Because you have papers with a, a, a ministry organization? And from that day forward, I, I have, I've had a lifestyle of repenting. I don't want to assume. I don't want to assume. So here's what I would suggest. This week, don't assume. Talk to God. Say, God, is there anything, anything I need to do different? Anything. And then go there with him. Before noon tomorrow, God's going to give you the opportunity to let somebody know Jesus loves them. Do the best you can. Tell somebody about Jesus. He will honor that in your life. It's a guarantee. So shake somebody's hand. Hug their neck. Tell them how glad that you are that you got to see them today. And uh, we will see you Wednesday night.
Heavy. The chains break at the 